0: Hello, this is Daryl Bloodworth of the Episcopal Church of the Good Shepherd in Maitland, Florida, and this is Lesson 17 in our study of the Gospel of John. We begin with verses 1 through 4 of chapter 16. I have said these things to you to keep you from stumbling. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, an hour is coming when those who kill you will think that by doing so they are offering worship to God. And they will do this because they have not known the Father or me. But I have said these things to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you about them. As Jesus and the disciples approach Gethsemane, Jesus continues his warnings of what lies ahead for the disciples after his departure. He tells them that all the warnings he has given them are to keep them from stumbling. Remember, their view of the future had been that Jesus will lead the renewal of Israel, becoming its king, kicking out the Romans and restoring Israel to its former glory. He knows that their future will be quite different from that. And when their expectations are not met, they may stumble and fall away. That has already happened to Judas Iscariot. He tells them they will be banned from the synagogue, which is a ban from all of Jewish life and community, just as he has already been banned. Furthermore, a time will soon come when it is viewed as service to God to kill followers of Jesus. That prophecy was soon fulfilled when Saul of Tarsus and others arrested and put to death some of the early leaders in the Christian church. It took Jesus confronting Paul on the road to Damascus to turn Saul, soon known as Paul, from his murderous ways. In one of the saddest statements Jesus ever made, he says that all this will occur because those who will be persecuting them know neither Jesus nor the Father. This is an especially difficult time for the disciples as well as for Jesus who is facing the cross. Jesus knows their expectations are undergoing a life-changing revision, and he wants them to know what lies ahead so they won't fall away when the wave of opposition rises up against them. By telling them explicitly what they will face, they will be prepared to deal with the opposition and persecution. Let's continue now with verses 5 through 11. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. Yet none of you ask me where are you going but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. Nevertheless, I tell you that the truth- I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. for if I do not go away, the advocate will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will prove the world wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because they do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father and you will see me no longer. About judgment, because the ruler of this world has been condemned. So Jesus realizes how difficult it is for the disciples to hear what he's now telling them. He explains he did not reveal all these details to them from the beginning because he was with them, and the revelations would have to come more gradually. They could only absorb so much, and he was there in person to continue uh, to teach them. But now he is leaving them and he acknowledges the grief they are experiencing. Yet he says it is their benefit that he is leaving because if he doesn't leave, the helper The Holy Spirit will not come to them. Whereas Jesus was in the flesh and could only be at a single place at any time, the Spirit would be in them and and in all believers wherever they go. Jesus also outlines for them what the work of the Holy Spirit will be. Essentially, the Holy Spirit will bring to fruition what Jesus has already begun. The Spirit will define three of the most basic notions of spirituality and show the world that it is wrong in its understanding of all three. The world is wrong about sin because it understood sin to be breaking the rules of the law. Jesus says the real definition of sin is refusing to believe in Him. Before Jesus came, the opposite of sin was adherence to the law. Now the opposite of sin is faith in Jesus. With regard to righteousness, the world is wrong because it condemned Jesus. His righteousness will be demonstrated by his return to the Father from whence he came. Before Jesus came, righteousness was based on human performance, strict obedience to the law. Now righteousness is the result of a right relationship with the Father, which can only come through Jesus. Finally, the world is wrong about judgment because Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross will result in the condemnation of the prince of this world, Satan. Remember, the Jewish leaders would soon condemn Jesus to the cross, thinking they are serving God by condemning him. When in fact, his death was the atonement for sin, which actually removed those who believe in him from condemnation and judgment. Convincing the world of the correct understanding about sin, righteousness, and judgment will be the work of the Spirit when he comes. And he has fulfilled that task magnificently. Jesus was tried and convicted by the Roman government as a criminal after being tried and convicted by the Jewish government as being a blaspheming heretic who had a demon from Satan. That was the charge against him. He was given the punishment that only the worst of criminals was given, crucifixion. Yet soon thereafter, a significant part of the world put their trust for all eternity in this crucified Jewish criminal. It was the work of the Holy Spirit to convince the world of who Jesus really is based upon his resurrection from the dead and his ascension to the Father. When you consider what is really and truly miraculous, this has to head the list. Let's continue on now with verses 12 through 15. I still have many things to say to you. So Jesus tells them he has much more to say to them, but they just couldn't bear any more at this time. He promises them that the Spirit of Truth will lead them into all the truth he has for them. The word for bringing the truth of God to humans is revelation. In fact, all of Scripture, from the beginning of Genesis to the revelation of John, has been an ongoing revelation of God to mankind. And God's revelation did not end with the book of Revelation. It continues to this day. It has been a progressive process that has come gradually at times, and at other times, such as at Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, quite suddenly. As Jesus told his disciples, he had much more he wanted to say to them, but they just couldn't bear any more at that time. He is assuring his disciples and us that when the Spirit comes and leads them into truth, He will be speaking only what he hears from Jesus and the Father, just as Jesus spoke only what he heard from the Father. There are two ways to look at what Jesus is telling the disciples. The first way is to assume that the truths the Spirit will bring to us are only spiritual truths. While the Spirit will certainly bring spiritual truths to us, I do believe that all truth is God's truth. God created the universe we live in, and he certainly knows what is true about our physical world and what is not. And it is by his grace and revelation that we learn all truth. This is something to keep in mind given the condition of our world today. To some people, the truth is elastic and can be stretched to mean anything they want to believe to be true. But God's truth is objective truth. It does not change because of what someone wants it to be. As Christians, we should always ask the Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth, God's truth. We continue now with verses 16 through 24. A little while, and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Then some of his disciples said to one another, What does he mean by saying to us, A little while, and you will no longer see me? And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. They said, what does he mean by this, a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Are you discussing among yourselves what I meant when I said, A little while, and you will no longer see me? And again, a little while, and you will see me? Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn, but the world will rejoice." You will have pain, but your pain will turn into joy. When a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when her child is born, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy of having brought a human being into the world. So you have pain now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. On that day you will ask nothing of me. Very truly I tell you, if you ask anything of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive, so that your joy may be made complete. Jesus continues to prepare the disciples for what lies ahead. In a little while you will no longer see me, again a little while and you will see me. The disciples are totally mystified by this. But by now they are finally ready to admit they don't know what Jesus is talking about. That's something they haven't always been willing to admit in the past. But now they are finally ready to admit it. Jesus, sensing that they want to discuss what he is talking about, takes the initiative and asks them if they are discussing among themselves what he is talking about. He then paints a picture of what will happen over the next few days. They will weep and mourn, while the world, and of this, think of the Jewish leadership, will rejoice over the fact Jesus is dead. But their pain will turn to joy, while the Jewish leadership will learn that their problems with Jesus are just beginning. Jesus uses the analogy of a woman giving birth to compare the swing in emotions they will experience over the next few days. Many of you know far better than I about the pain of childbirth, but also about the joy of the newborn child. He tells them they will see him again, and no one will take from them their joy of seeing him again. He also lets them know that when that day comes, they will have a new relationship with the Father. When that day comes, they can ask anything of the Father in Jesus' name, and they will receive they can ask anything of the Father while abiding in Jesus, because if they abide in Him, anything they ask for will be in accord with His will, and the Father will grant it. This, too, will be part of their joy. In short, Jesus telling them of the new age to come. The Jews had anticipated a change from the present age, which was bad, to the age of the Lord, which would be good. The Messiah would usher in the new age, which they understood to be an age in which God would restore the kingdom to Israel, and they would be free from their tormentors, primarily the Romans, and others who would resist God. The disciples would have held this view as well, but they are now sensing the age to come is going to be different than they had anticipated. Jesus is now telling them they will have a new and different relationship with the Father because they accept Jesus. And in this new relationship, their joy will be made complete. We continue on now with verses 25 through 33. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures, but will tell you plainly of the Father. On that day you will ask in my name. I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Yes, now you are speaking plainly, not in any figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need to have anyone question you. By this we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? The hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each one to his home, and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. I have said this to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you face persecution, but take courage, I have conquered the world." In these verses, Jesus acknowledges that he has used figures of speech in teaching them, and he has used a variety of figures of of speech throughout his ministry when speaking in public and also in teaching the disciples. These have included living water, the light of the world, the gate to the sheepfold, and the true vine. Soon, he says, he will no longer use figures of speech, but will tell them plainly about the Father, Furthermore, they can go directly to the Father because the Father loves them, because they have loved Jesus and believe He came from God. He tells them plainly that He has come from the Father and is now about to return to the Father. Finally, the disciples understand Him. They say they now believe He came from God. In verse 31, Jesus seems to challenge their statement that they now believe. He tells them they will soon abandon Him and return to their own homes. But Jesus tells them he won't be alone because the Father will still be with him. Then Jesus says something they must have found to be very strange. He tells them all these things so they may have peace when they take place. Peace is the last thing they are feeling right now. Jesus tells them they will face persecution in the world, but they should take courage because he has conquered the world. They are still struggling with what he has told them. But these verses make four things quite clear about Jesus. The first is, he would be left alone by his disciples. Although they had been with him from the beginning of his ministry, they will abandon him once he is arrested. But Jesus wasn't overwrought about this because the Father would be with him until he cries out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? The second thing it makes clear is the forgiveness of Jesus. Even though they would abandon him, he doesn't rebuke the disciples or condemn them. He forgave them, even knowing what they would do. I find that to be amazingly reassuring. The third thing these verses make clear is the sympathy of Jesus. He tells them about these things beforehand so that they might have peace in him. Had He not warned them in advance, once the things He foretold actually came to pass, they might have been so regretful and despairing they could not go forward with the great commission He will give them before His ascension. He has warned them, and He has told them He would forgive them and give them His peace after these things take place. He wants them not to despair, but remember what He has told them in advance. And the fourth thing these verses make clear is the gift of Jesus, and that gift is courage and conquest. They will be able to take courage because they will see Him face to face on the other side of the cross. They will see for themselves and know that Jesus has overcome death. Any remaining doubts they might have had will be no more. The world did the worst it could to Jesus, and it could not defeat Him. They will see for themselves that Jesus is invincible And they can be also if they abide in him. These verses mark the end of Jesus' final instructions to his disciples. Next week we will take up chapter 17, which is Jesus' high priestly prayer for his disciples and all who will follow him.